Well, we worship together as we uh, experience the kindness of God and the love of God. And on this Father's Day, we want to look specifically at how the kindness of a father, through Jesus, demonstrated himself to us. But not when we were at our best, not when we were doing things well, but how did God show his kindness to us when we were at our worst, when we were literally his enemies? This has been a week where we've thought a lot about enemies. Every time you turn on the news, you got to hear about how this terrorist treated his enemies. People disagreed with him religiously. People disagreed with him politically. People disagreed with him sexually. And how he treated his enemies. It's amazing that this particular passage that we're looking at in Titus that speaks about how Christians should view their enemies would time up to a time in our history when people are thinking about how we should feel toward people we disagree with, how we should treat people who do not treat us well. And so as we look at how Paul writes to Titus, to a group of people living in Crete at a time when Christians are being demonized, I think that more so than ever it's painfully practical. But i got to tell you, this passage is so countercultural, it's so shocking that everything in me wants to give caveats as we go through the message. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to let the passage challenge us just as challenging as it is on what kind of mindset we as followers of Jesus should have toward our enemies, toward those we disagree with, towards those who don't uh, think or see things the way we do. But to understand just how radical it is, I think you need to understand exactly what was going on in the culture when the book of Titus was written between 62 and 67 A.D. It was written during a time where the Roman Empire was in command. And it was indeed a dictatorship, and a very cruel one at that. Nero is going to be one of the emperors during that time, and Vespasian will be the other. And they rule with an iron fist, and they are not real happy with Christians. In fact, they knew how to handle their enemies. In 62 to 67, Nero begins to expel all the actors from Rome, and he begins to take over the circus. And the circus is not like we think of a circus. It was more like the games that preceded what would eventually be in the Colosseum. These were activities. Sometimes there were people being tortured in the circus. Other times there were competitions going on. But he takes over. He doesn't like the actors. He's going to take control in the Roman Empire. 62 A.D., he doesn't like how his wife's speaking to him, handling him, interacting with him. So his interaction with his wife is, divorces her, get rid of her. She's my enemy now. I'm going to take on my mistress. And so he marries his mistress, Papea Sabina. 64 A.D., the great fire of Rome. And of course, the the story is always that Nero was fiddling as Rome burnt. Because he wanted to burn down certain parts so he could expand his palace. If you've been to ancient Rome, you've probably seen the Colosseum. Imagine walking down that main strip toward the Colosseum. That used to be the lake from Nero's palace. If you look up to the left on the hill, if you visited there, it's Nero's palace up there on the left. And the Colosseum was the lake on his property. But people began to be suspicious that maybe Nero is the one that caused the fire. And so they began to make accusations against him. So he needs a scapegoat. So he begins to say, you know what the real problem in this city is? You know what the real problem around here is? What? The Christians. They won't acknowledge me as Lord and God. They won't acknowledge our traditions. They won't acknowledge our religion. They're the reason our city was destroyed. They burnt Rome. 
And Nero turns the whole population against followers of Jesus. See, you don't mess with Nero. He knew how to handle his enemies. It gets worse. Several people within his administration decide they're going to try and overthrow Nero. They're known as the Pisonian Conspiracy. Nineteen men trying to overthrow him, and they do not succeed. And so what does he do with these conspirators? He either kills them or forces them to commit suicide. You don't mess with Nero, because he kills, tortures, demonizes anyone who comes against him. Well, you remember that woman that he married in 62 A.D.? Let's see how, uh, how long that marriage lasted. 62 A.D. It's now 65 A.D. Three years later, this new wife, mistress, disagrees with Nero one day. And he literally kicks her to death after an argument. And this is the guy in control of the known world when the book of Titus is written. He'll be followed up by a future emperor, Vespasian. He'll be sent to Judea. Because there's a, a Jewish revolt trying to come against Rome. I got a chance to visit one of the areas where the Jewish revolt hid their kids and hid their families in these caves. And the Romans literally built ladders so they could yank the kids and kill the families of anyone who came against Rome. That's how Rome dealt with its enemies. In fact, it's just a few years after that that Nero enters the Olympic Games. He comes into the Olympic Games. Can you guess who's going to win? I mean, we've, we've played ball, golf with our boss before. And you're in that dilemma. Do I let him win or do I not let her win? Imagine a guy who's known for killing, torturing his enemies. Surprise! He's named the winner of every event he enters. You don't mess with Nero because he knows how to handle his enemies. So it's into this culture... Then Nero will eventually set up these circuses. I got a chance to visit the Circus Maximus when I was 17. I remember standing right here on the hillside. And right along the edges, they would actually put posts. There would be posts put here because a lot of the games happened at night. And they wanted to keep the games illuminated as people ran around through here or they had different activities in this area. And Nero would take Christians and he would tie them up to these posts, cover them with pitch, tar, he would light them on fire, and as the games went on through the night, he would literally be burning the Christians. And it's into this culture that Paul writes to Titus. He says, Titus, I want you to tell my people that we don't handle our enemies the way the culture handles their enemies. They serve a king that kills his enemies with cruelty. We serve another king who kills his enemies with kindness. One king kills his enemies with cruelty. Another king, the king we represent, the king who's brought his kingdom to this planet, the king that lives within us, he kills his enemies with kindness. He overwhelms them with kindness. And I want you to remember this as you face this incredibly difficult culture that's coming increasingly antagonistic toward followers of Jesus. Tell the people living in Crete three things they need to remember. And if they will remember these three things, they will have the peace of God in them and they will be able to have influence in a culture that treats them as the very problem. The first remember. He says, Titus, I want you to remember to overwhelm, overwhelm your enemies with kindness. Overwhelm them. When they say things to you, when they accuse you of things, I want you to remember to do certain things that will overwhelm them with kindness. 
Now, do you remember being in, in college or in high school and you were learning how to diagram sentences? And, and you raised your hand one time bravely and said, when are we ever going to use this? Here's one example when you're in uh, the New Testament. It's a Bible study technique when you can use diagramming sentences. So when you have, especially Paul's writing works very well for this. So, for example, Paul says, remind them. But if you tab over, you'll see the word two appears. And if you return down, two appears and two appears and two appears. What this helps you when you're studying a, a passage in the Bible, it begins to show you it's not reminding you of one thing. It's actually reminding you to do multiple things. Because all these two subordinate under remind them. So remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities. Also remind them to obey, to be ready for every good work. Remind them to speak evil of no one. And remind them to be peaceable and gentle, showing all humility to all men. So all of these support the remind. I want you to remind them to do these things. Now, now that you understand who's in command, who the authority and ruler is of Rome, do you see how shocking this is? Remind the followers of Jesus living under Nero to be subject. It's where we get the word submission, which comes from sub and mission. Sub, to subordinate your own desires, your own wants, to the greater mission of what God is doing. I want you to subordinate to the mission of what these rulers, like Nero and Vespasian, are asking you to do. Whenever possible, be a great citizen. Whenever possible, don't be known as somebody who lives up to what he's saying, that you're divisive and you're trying to overthrow. I want you to, as much as possible, try and follow the commands, be subject to the commands of these evil, secular dictators. More than that, I want you to obey. I want you to be ready for every good work. While you're being accused of trying to divide the city, I want you to be great citizens working toward the best of the city. I want people to be known in your community and in your city and in your area of the Roman Empire that you are somebody who cares for everyone in the city, whether Christians or not. That you work toward the betterment of the city. You care for those around the city. I want you to try and obey the laws of the land, but more than that, I want you to find every possible opportunity you can in a culture that demonizes you to do every good work you could do. That's how you're going to gain influence in a world that demonizes you. More than that, I want you, and hear this, remind the followers of Jesus to speak evil of no one, not even Nero, who burned my daughter at the Circus Maximus, not even Nero or Vespasian, who dragged my wife out of our house. I want you to be known as people who speak evil of no one. And we live in a culture today when you get on any Facebook page and every third post on your news feed is somebody demonizing one side of the political aisle, isn't it? To the point you're like, oh my goodness, where are those cool cookbook videos? Okay, I'll watch one of those. And if... Paul can challenge Titus not to speak evil of anyone in the context of political leaders in a time when Nero and Vespasian were in charge. How much more should we be careful not to speak evil? It doesn't mean we, we, we falter our convictions. It doesn't mean we don't have convictions. But it means the way we communicate, the way we come across is not divisive. We don't speak evil of other people. 
And in general, we overwhelm the community that demonizes us with kindness. Even as we communicate something we disagree on, we do it in a way that is loving and kind. We are peaceable. We try and bring peace, bring people together, not divide. And we are known for being gentle. Our approach, even in disagreement, is gentle. And we have all humility toward all, all, all men. I told you this was a challenging passage. What what do people know? And if I talk to your daughter or your son or your dad or your brother or your boss or your colleague, what adjective would come to mind when they described you? Matter of fact, fun, smart, critical, a little matter of fact. Would the adjective kind, gentle, peaceable, speaking evil of no one, even show up in the list? And yet that's the list that God says ought to be the first adjective people think of us, especially those who disagree with us and how we handle ourselves in the world. Again, this is under the time of Emperor Nero and Vespasian, that they were to overwhelm this community with kindness. Now, why would they do this? How could they do this? Well, I think God is saying, I want you to be subordinate to the greater mission. And the greater mission is I'm trying to draw my enemies, including Nero and Vespasian, to come to know me. And so, yes, it's going to be uncomfortable. Yes, it's going to be difficult. Yes, it's going to be a lot of holding your tongue. But I want you in those moments to say, I'm going to subordinate myself to the greater mission That if I could be used by God to lead Nero to Christ, oh my goodness, I could transform the whole country. I could transform the whole world if I could, by the way I interact in this situation, influence the emperor himself. Now certainly, these admonitions are given not in a democratic republic government system like we have. They're given in a brutal dictatorship where you literally have no power to overcome. You're being victimized by the government. And I think what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to say, I want to give you the power to influence somebody who's victimized you and has given you no power. Take a great example of this is a movie called The End of All Wars. You can see uh, Jack Bauer was in it. Only in this movie, Keith Sutherland doesn't play Jack Bauer. He plays a POW. It's a true story told of Christians who were living in a Japanese POW camp. And they tried to escape and they were crushed for it brutalized for it. And in this situation, much like Rome, where they had no recourse to fight back, they said, what should we do? How do we act as Christians in an environment where we have no other recourse? And they began to read the scriptures. And they said, well, the Bible tells us we're supposed to love our enemies, bless our enemies, and by doing so, we will get influence with our enemies. That sounds like a terrible idea. But they try it. And based on the true story, they began to, while they were forced into incredibly difficult labor and difficult circumstances, they would purposely try and find ways to serve their master. They would have a little cup of water, a little cup of food, and they would bring it to the master and say, could I share some with you? They would be told to clear a certain section of land, and they'd say, could we clear two? And over time in the movie, it tells the true story of how these brutal taskmasters from a Japanese culture that appreciated honor and respect began to soften toward them. 
They began to be intrigued that they had never seen slaves, POWs, that acted this way. That could not be, have their spirit crushed, who would still respect them despite what they were doing. And many of them began to soften and began to ask questions of these prisoners. What makes you different? And many of them became followers of Jesus. Now, the general did not, if I remember the colonel. He, he, he just kept pushing to just see how real this was. To which the movie culminates with one of the prisoners is actually crucified right in the middle of the Japanese uh, POW camp. And here as he's crucified, it looked like Hollywood, but if you look up the background, this is exactly what happened in history. As they crucified him in this POW camp, he said the very words of Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he demonstrated in the worst of worst of circumstances a humility and kindness toward enemies that began to transform in a very difficult circumstance. And I think that's why Paul's saying this first remember is so important. We overwhelm our enemies with kindness by showing all humility to all men, and God will use that in unique circumstances. Now, are there times that you're living in a time or a government where they ask you to do things that are wrong and you shouldn't obey? Without a doubt. The Bible talks about that. There's times when, when the Egyptian pharaoh tells you to kill all the children. And the midwives don't, and they hide, and Moses is alive because of it. There's times that people come, and they they want to take the spies that have gone into Jericho, and Rahab lies and says they're not here and hides them. There are times throughout Scripture that there is a higher law. Think about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego commanded to bow down before the altar, and they said, we can't do that. And even the Christians living during the time of Nero said, we cannot call you Lord and Master, for we only have one Lord and Master. So there are definitely times that we appeal to a higher standard. But as much as possible, I want you to treat your enemies with kindness, speak evil of no one. To which I say, but how can I do that? How in the world is that possible? Easy for you to say, I guess. Nice to write a note. How do you do this thing? And Paul tells Titus in the second, remember, here's how you do it. Here's how you treat the boyfriend who treated your daughter so poorly. Here's how you treat your ex-partner. Here's how you treat the woman you divorced, the man you divorced, the person who stabbed you in the back. Here's how you treat somebody that is your true enemy, that when they walk in the room, you just, something inside you ties in the knots. I know you don't have any of these people, but I have a few. When you think of that person, how would you love them? How would you be kind to them? Paul says, I'll tell you how you do it. You remember that you were enemies, that God overwhelmed with his kindness. For we ourselves were. When God looked at you, when God looked at me, let me tell you what your resume looked like to God. Oh, that's interesting. What did your resume look like to God? Well, if I pulled out your resume, it said, prior to knowing Jesus, prior to being seen through the eyes of Jesus... God saw you as foolish, hmm. disobedient, hmm. deceived, uh-huh. serving, given into, overwhelmed by, overcome by various lusts, the lust to anger, the lust to demand my own way, the lust to be impatient, the, the, the lust for certain pleasures, the lust to, to demand my own way or to, to put people in their place. We were just served our lusts. We served our pleasures. But here's the good news. We lived with malice. We divided people. We, 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 we pit people against each other. And you're my side or their side. 
Do you agree with me on this issue? Do you agree with them on this issue? Well, they're now the bad guys, or you're now the bad guys. But it gets better. Also on a resume, it talks about how envious we are. I want that. I deserve that. They didn't earn that. They didn't work for that. But more good news on your resume and mine is that when you really think of how God saw our heart, he said, you know what's really in their heart? When I look deep, deep, deep within, they're hateful. And they hate one another. And you look at that list and you're like, not me. I know some people like that. I've worked with some people like that. I was once married to a person like that. But I'm not like that. But Paul says, no, no. No, no. We were. We were. That is exactly how we were before Christ. We were enemies toward God. And God saw us in this condition. And in this condition, you know how God treated us? You know how God interacted with us? He was kind to us when we were enemies. It's amazing how kindness stands out in our culture. Think about even Donald Trump and just some of the nasty things he said about um, Megyn Kelly over the last year. And Grant, you probably did it for the ratings, but it was amazing that after months and months of these, this kind of you know, Twitter feud, that she decides to reach out and say, hey, could we talk? Again, she probably did it for the ratings. And he probably agreed to the meeting for the ratings. But one thing was striking about the conversation. She came to Trump Towers and said, hey, after everything that's happened, would you still be willing to do an interview? And after that meeting, he said, I, I, I really respected her, that after everything that's happened, she would reach out and still try and have a conversation. Kindness shines out even in our culture today. I was talking to a family this week, and uh, a father in the family has really crossed some boundaries He's got some addiction issues, some gambling issues. And because of that, several family members, a 20-year-old in particular, has really broken off contact from dad. And her life has been so much better without this issue in her life, without her dad in her life, without all these problems in her life. But as she was interacting with another family member, they said, yeah, but still, it's your dad. He wants to have a relationship with you. And yes, keep those boundaries, but you have a life so much easier without that hassle. But I'll pray about it. And she was prayed about it, and she felt like God was saying, I want you to initiate, even in a difficult relationship, I want you to be kind to somebody who necessarily hasn't been kind to you. doesn't mean you don't have boundaries, but I want you to keep initiating. And she obeyed God and came to her father. So then, I want to try and reach out. I want to try and reconnect. Now, I want you to respect these things I've asked. Oh, I will, I will. I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Thank you for reaching out. I've missed you. Thank you for giving me another chance. And the whole family has been impacted. Because in a, in a culture that you discard people you disagree with, you, you sign them off, you scratch them off, you say, thank goodness, it is going to stand out in a family that we decide that we're going to keep initiating, we're going to keep trying to reconcile with difficult people who we see and view as our enemies. And the only way I know that you can do that is by recognizing that we were enemies, that God did the same to us. Because when we were in this condition, how did God treat us? What was his response? But when we were in that condition, the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. When we were in the moment of being enemies of God, overwhelmed and overcome, demanding our own way, what God felt toward us was not annoyance or criticism or, jeez, another time. He felt kindness. And love toward us. 
And he wanted to save or rescue or deliver us from that condition we found ourselves in, deceived by our own, by our own hearts. And it was at that moment the kindness of God appeared, not by works of righteousness that you and I have done. We didn't deserve it. We were enemies of him. But according to his mercy... So the first thing he says is, mercy is not giving you what you deserved. You were an enemy of God, and I pulled out the lightning bolt, and I did not give you what you deserved. But it didn't stop there. It wasn't just that God gave you mercy. He went on, and he saved us. He delivered us from the consequences of what we deserved. And he didn't stop there. Then he washed us. Our enemies, he washed, he cleansed, he served, he regenerated us. I'll talk about that in a moment. He renewed us. Look at all these things he does. Mercy, saved, washing, regeneration, renewing by the very Holy Spirit he put in us. And then he poured out on us. And it wasn't like poured out a little bit. It wasn't an eyedropper. He washed us, poured out abundantly, it says, through Jesus Christ. And there's the word again, our Savior. He went to great extremes to rescue us, to wash us, to cleanse us abundantly. With the kindness of God. What a God. What a God who would treat you and me like this when we were at our worst. When you think of the worst thing you've ever done. When you think of your worst moment of anger or your worst moment of lust. You're condemning yourself or feeling shame and guilt for it. I want you to transfer your thoughts to how God felt in that moment. He wasn't... Denying all that was far worse than you even imagined. But what he felt toward you in that moment was kindness and love and a desire to wash and cleanse you and rescue you from yourself. And he didn't stop there. And having done all that, the result was that you have been justified. It's just as if I'd never sinned. Just as if I'd not made mistakes. Just as if I'd had a perfect record. That's how he treats his enemies? It gets better than that. He justified you through his grace. If mercy is not getting what you deserve, grace is getting what you don't deserve. So not only did we not get punishment, but he took us in grace and he made us his heir. You've got to be kidding. He sat down and he said, listen, You have worked against me. You have spit in my face. You've crucified me on a cross. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write you into my will. That you have full access and full air to all of my treasures and all of my riches of all the universe, all the universes that I own. What a kind, loving, caring God. God overwhelmed us as his enemies with the kindness of the world and in that gave us hope for eternal life. Now there's a lot of theological words in here. Renewing and regeneration. So let me give you a little pictorial look at what happens when you become a follower of Jesus. I gave a little of this last week. um, But I think this is helpful in understanding how we as Christians live out and work out by faith our salvation. The Bible says that human beings are designed, like God, three parts. We are made with a body, a soul, and a spirit. So think of it this way. We have a body. We have a soul, which is composed of our thoughts, our emotions, 
and our desires or our wants. All three of those are part of your soul. And then you have a spirit. And for many of us, we, we grew up thinking that the Bible taught that we were bad people and we need to be better. Well, if you're a bad person who needs to be better, you just need to do more good. But he just told us the problem is that our works of righteousness aren't going to cut it. We are not bad people who need to be good. The issue is we are dead people who need to be made alive. See, a bad person can learn to be better. A dead person needs somebody to bring them to life. And so what happened is when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, death entered. Remember, Jesus, God said, when you eat of it, you will die. Not be bad. You're dead. Your death produces badness. So at the moment Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they have a body that start dying. And the older we get, the more we realize how real that dying body is. We start to get up from watching our favorite TV show or watching our favorite game. And all of a sudden, we, 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 we go to grab a drink and we're like, oh. we're making noises when we move. We're like, I sound like my grandpa. Oh. Our bodies, our hip, we're not recovering as well as we did. We have a body that's truly falling apart. And at the moment they ate the fruit, they didn't instantly die, but they now had death entered their body. They now had a mortal body. But it was more than that. It was at that moment death entered their soul. They now had thoughts that were not aligned to God's alive thoughts. They thought God would be angry at them. They thought they should be ashamed. They thought they didn't deserve to be in God's presence. They thought that God was against them. They thought that God was withholding the good stuff on the tree from them. But death entered their feelings, emotions. They began to feel things that were dead, like fear and shame. They began to want things that were dead. As many of us today, we find ourselves, we know that's bad for us. We'll eat that, say that, handle anger that way. But we still find ourselves wanting or craving the very things that are destroying us. We have a dead thought. We have dead desires. We have dead emotions. Our soul was dead. And worse than that, we had a dead spirit. It did not seek after God, Romans says. It did not long for God. And so God came and says, I want to give you my Holy Spirit. And if you recognize that you are dead and need me to raise you from the dead, I will come and live in you and you will get a new spirit and a live spirit, the new you, the new creation. I will resurrect your spirit and it will be alive to me. My Holy Spirit lives in you and I brought it back from the dead. And now every day as a follower of Jesus, you'll have a choice to make. Am I going to trust by faith the new engine of the Spirit of God in me, am I going to believe His thoughts or my thoughts? Am I going to believe, oh my goodness, I'm facing the unknown, God is against me, God's left the building? Or am I going to listen to the voice of that engine of the new Spirit in me that says, be strong and courageous, for I am with you, and I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And it's not an issue of works, it's an issue of faith. If I begin to trust His thoughts, my soul begins to be saved or delivered from dead thoughts. I find myself in emotions and I wonder if God is here, if he cares about me. And I begin to trust by faith the new spirit's thoughts and emotions and feelings in the situation. And I begin to tell my soul, soul, trust in the Lord. And those new thoughts come to life as his spirit breathes them into me. And he gets all the credit, not me, because he brought those emotions back to life. And then my wants, I begin to say, God, I found a dead spot again. Oh, I lost my anger over here. I need to get close to you. Will you breathe your resurrection power into my anger, into my lust? 
Will you breathe your resurrection power into this dead spot I found again? And we live in constant dependence of the God who can bring resurrection power into our lives. And we have the hope that one day we will die and this body will fall apart. And when that body gets put in the ground and our soul and our spirit are sending to heaven, there will come a day at the rapture that our bodies placed in the ground will be renewed and we will get a brand new body and we will be reassembled as a brand new fully living body, soul, and spirit in a heaven, a real place for real people. And this is the hope of the message of Jesus. That in the kindness of God, He did all of this and gave us an engine to grow in our spiritual lives today. Which I think is why Titus ends this passage by saying this. Remember to believe. Remember to believe this is true. This is a faithful saying. And these things I want you to affirm constantly. As a Christian, you need to affirm constantly. All the time, you've got to be thinking about this. God, I want your thoughts. I want your emotions. I want your desires. God, I need you in my life. I need you breathing resurrection power in my life. Affirm constantly that those who believed in God should be careful. Believe and be careful. Be careful to do what? To maintain, to keep up, to be focused on good works. How do you do that? You believe in the good work he did for you. And then you say, God, in light of what you've done for me, how does that good work flow toward others? And when you do that, these things, these good works that you maintained out of belief are good and profitable. And if I was writing the Bible, I would have put their good and profitable to God who will reward you. It's not what he says. He says good and profitable to men. This will pave the way for influence to the men in the culture, to the people in the culture who disagree with your enemies. And they're going to say, man, I do not agree with the way they handle their money. They're always giving it away. I do not agree with the way they they think about uh, sexual intimacy. They save it for marriage. That does not make any sense to me as a Roman. But man, they're kind. And wow, the way they handle themselves. I want a marriage like that. I want a family like that. I want a community like that. We pave the way to influence to other people as we believe and be careful to flow through God's good work to us and be good to others. One king killed his enemies with cruelty. Another king killed his enemies with kindness. So here's a question I want to leave us with. Who this week can I overwhelm with kindness? Overwhelm with kindness. And you say, I can't do it then pray God would breathe life into that area. You know, I've never heard a couple come in to any of us on staff in marriage and say, you know, my wife, she's just too kind to me. My husband, he's always saying nice things. Could you, could you do something about his kindness? And yet everyone would love to have a marriage like that. I've never heard anyone say, my parents, you know, the problem with my parents is they're just too nice to me. You know, my kids, they're just too kind when, when they disagree with my decision. They're just too obedient. Imagine a community... Imagine a culture. Imagine a family. Imagine a country. Not that everybody agrees. When people who vehemently disagree are kind toward one another. How much influence would we have if we simply lived out the kindness of God? As Abe Lincoln once said, Do I not destroy my enemies? when I make them my friends. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness at the cross. And I ask that this week you would challenge each one of us
to be revolutionary in our thoughts toward our enemies and being kind and loving toward them and that you would use those acts to draw people to yourself. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being with us today. If you came prepared to give financially, there's some offering boxes on the way out. If you are new to the church, we'd love to say hi. Third door on your left is the hearth room. We'd love to put a name with a face. Thanks for being here today.